0: The kind of things we're seeing in Ukraine we've seen for 5,000 years in human warfare. We've seen different tools used. But what we're seeing in Ukraine is more a continuity of warfare rather than a step change in warfare. <laughs>
1: Welcome to The Political Animals. I'm your host, Jonathan Cole. I'm Assistant Director at the Centre for Religion, Ethics and Society at Charles Sturt University. Joining me for a conversation about Ukraine and the future of warfare is Mick Ryan. Mick is a strategist, a recently retired Major General in the Australian Army who served in East Timor, Iraq and Afghanistan. And he's the author of a great book, which I've had the pleasure of reading, Called War Transformed, The Future of Twenty First Century Great Power Competition and Conflict. Mick, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. It's great to be with you today.
1: Mick, we're going to begin the conversation with Ukraine as a obviously it's a topical war that needs no justification for its being on the menu, so to speak, but it's going to be a bit of a case study for some of the themes you deal with in your book. I guess the logical place to start is with a bit of a status update of what's going on now on the ground. Incredibly, the war is 57 days old at the time we're recording this, which is the 22nd of April. A lot has happened in that 57 days. And sadly, it looks like it could easily go another 57 days or much longer. So could you tell us or give us a bit of an overview of what's happening strategically, operationally and tactically right now in Ukraine?
0: Sure. Um, As of Friday, 22nd of April, we are at a point where the Russians have been beaten for the Battle of Kiev. Their initial strategy for a rapid takeover of Ukraine has failed. Uh, They have secured uh, large parts of the Ukrainian coastline and a buffer to the north of Ukraine and parts of the Donbass. They are about to launch a large-scale offensive. They've been doing some probing attacks and artillery shaping over the last few days, but we should expect a large-scale Russian offensive in the coming days in that area. Uh, At the more strategic level, Ukraine has continued to solicit and receive Western aid, both uh, humanitarian and military, uh, and the larger and more capable packages that we're starting to see from the US but other Eastern European countries, which include tanks, armoured vehicles, artillery and uh, helicopters, will significantly help the Ukrainians in defending their territory and repulsing this Russian offensive, which we'll see out of the Donbass.
1: The attempt to take Kyiv, which was by all accounts an abysmal uh, failure, and that was a fairly large-scale offensive in its own right, does, I guess, bring into question the capability of the Russian military to successfully consummate the offensive in the Donbass, to what extent have they been able to overcome, or is there any evidence that they've been able to address some of the shortcomings, critical shortcomings that affected that uh, failed attempt to take Kiev? And... I mean, I realise that there's a different landscape. Uh, there are sort of different circumstances here because it's not quite as urban. There's a front line that I think runs for something like 160 miles, uh, somewhat reminiscent of World War I with trenches and fortified positions on the Ukrainian side. I guess I'm really asking what, what prospect do you think that this new Donbass offensive um, has of success for the Russians?
0: I think... It has a 50-50 chance at at best. The Russians so far have not demonstrated high tactical competence. Um, They have not undertaken unified operations which have uh, orchestrated the different regions of Ukraine and their operations in them. That said, in the east they will concentrate their forces in a smaller area um, and be more proximate to Russian logistics support hubs and Russian airfields for uh, air support, both from Russian army aviation but air force uh, attack aircraft as well, than they were in the north. On the other side, the Ukrainians traditionally have deployed their very best brigades in the east of Ukraine, and they have a lot of brigades there, uh, at least a dozen. And this is an important point. They've been there for a long time preparing for this, eight years. So they know the ground well. The Russians and the Ukrainians also are fighting differently. The Russians are fighting as battalion tactical groups. The, The Ukrainians are fighting as brigades. I think the Ukrainian approach is a superior one. It is a more combined arms approach, has more combat power and is more adaptable. So I think the Russians have a 50-50 chance at best in making significant advances during this offensive. They may make minor tactical advances that you know, eventually will be pushed back by the Ukrainians. Uh, But the way they fight, the way they've been led, the way they've been supported so far in this war indicates to me that they don't have a huge chance of success in this offensive.
1: I think many observers have been somewhat surprised, some perhaps even shocked at the poor showing that the Russian military has uh, put up in Ukraine. I mean, setting aside what I regard to be the insanity of actually sort of strategic insanity of trying to conquer a whole country, uh, with that level of resistance on the other other side setting that that aside if you looked at the Russian military prior to the invasion on paper it was definitely one of the largest and most potent had a lot of it undergone the sort of highly discussed modernization um, in recent years ha- has a lot of sort of high-end gear and again on paper looked like it would be you know a formidable force and i think a lot of observers and analysts thought they might just steamroll over the ukrainians now granted they probably underestimated well definitely underestimated the not just the resolve and will of the ukrainians but also their combat uh, capability to what extent was there a gross overestimation of the russian military capability because the sort of facts and figures on paper can be quite misleading and they don't speak to things like the level of discipline training leadership capability and the rest of it to what extent does it just bring us back to the reality that warfare at this level is just bloody hard and you can have all the high-tech gear in the world you can have hundreds of thousands of troops but actually when you try to deploy them all in some coherent um, operation with multiple fronts against a well-armed and uh, highly motivated opposition that any military is going to run into trouble
0: Yeah, Uh, combat's difficult. Uh, It doesn't matter what era we're in. When you're fighting against someone else who's trying to achieve their objectives uh, and is well-armed and and reasonably well-trained, it is always going to be difficult. Uh, There's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, You know, uh, people get tired quickly, so they make uh, good and bad decisions. Um, You have courage. You have cowardice all in the same space. Um, there is nothing new in this. There is nothing new we're seeing in Ukraine in many in, in many respects. The kind of things we're seeing in Ukraine we've seen for 5,000 years in human warfare. We've seen different tools used. We've seen poor leadership and wonderful leadership. But what we're seeing in Ukraine is more a continuity of warfare rather than a step change in warfare.
1: That's really interesting because we will get to uh your book which is very much about the future of warfare and it's very interesting to hear you observe that mostly what we're seeing in Ukraine is a kind of old um type of warfare because I guess the nuts and bolts don't change and you you acknowledge in your book um Actually, and I may as well just bring this quote up because it's a really interesting one. You say, and I quote, warfare will employ a mix of old and new technologies, some ancient and others almost magical in their technological sophistication. Uh, Are you of the view that the conflict we're seeing in Ukraine is much more weighted to the old ancient (laughs) um, arts of warfare and we're seeing much less of the new magical technological sophistication. And in what areas are we actually seeing, if, if any, the, this sort of new technological sophistication?
0: Every day, technology changes. Uh, it moves forward. Um, and sometimes it moves forward in ways that are quite bewild- bewildering to most of us. Um, what we're seeing in Ukraine is not so much the application of new and advanced technologies, even though we're seeing some autonomous systems. Um, We are seeing better application or more sophisticated approaches to influence operations. What we're seeing actually is a bunch of old Soviet equipment being used differently, very differently by two different sides. I mean, the vast majority of tanks, for example, the T-72s. Now, these were designed in the 60s, built in the 70s and 80s. Same with the, the BMPs, BMDs, and a whole range of armoured vehicles. The artillery systems, the multi-launch rocket systems, even the fighter aircraft we're seeing, uh, largely these are products of the Cold War or just after the Cold War. Um, the new stuff we're seeing, and you know, we're not seeing it because generally these are close hold, is what are the battle management systems that are connecting units, equipment, information, intelligence, electronic warfare together on the battlefield? Um, What are the cyber operations that are going on in the background that we're not seeing? We're seeing some of it we know of attacks on Viasat, the Ukrainian power system and other things, but that's probably the tip of the iceberg. These are the kind of more sophisticated aspects of modern warfare that we're not seeing a lot of, that uh, by necessity countries will not talk about openly and we probably won't find out a lot about um, until the end of the war. Uh, I guess there is one standout new technology we've only seen used a couple of times. That's these hypersonic missiles the Russians used, I think, in the strike on Lviv. Um, pretty unimpressive, to be quite frank, Um it's a very expensive weapon system to use against a supply depot um, and reputedly didn't have much of an impact. So it was more a strategic influence tool or a, a tool of terrorisation rather than one that had real military effect. But to be frank, we have not seen a lot of employment of advanced, highly sophisticated uh, military systems in this war
1: is that because neither side really has them or is able to, has them, but perhaps isn't able to utilize them yet in a way that would have a sort of decisive impact on the battlefield? I mean, is it is it the case that we're locked into this kind of pseudo Cold War <laughs> conflict with Cold War era weapons because that's just what both militaries have and know how to use?
0: I think that's a large part yeah. of it. Um, you know, we're seeing them being supplemented, you know, the Ukrainians with javelins, Stinger and these kind of things, but these aren't new weapons. Like I, I carried, we carried javelins in Afghanistan when I was there uh, 16 years ago. Uh, so these aren't new technologies. The drones that are being used are not new and really sophisticated other than, say, Switchblade and the new drones that have been announced today in the the very latest US package. So largely these are two militaries that have... Um, large stockpiles of Soviet-era equipment, which work, which work fine, are reliable. You know, they're quite reliable. Um, and that's what they're duking it out over.
1: So in that sense, I mean, this this would be a big call, but I'll just put it in the most provocative terms so you can respond to it, serve as a bit of stimulation. But is it possible we're seeing the last of an era of conflict, the sort of last in a way, 20th century conventional warfare. Maybe there'll be a bit in some other less uh, developed countries in the future, but is this not indicative of the kind of war, for example, that a China and US might engage in over Taiwan?
0: I think there are a lot of lessons we can take from this uh, for Taiwan you know, in particular at the strategic level about the pace of warfare, about the uh, importance of charismatic strategic leadership. Um, so they, they're they all important, in the importance of influence operations. Um, so, you know, there are certain lessons, but when it comes to things like Russian logistics based on train lines and those kind of things, some of the lessons won't be applicable. Now, this is a really important point because the Russian operation for Ukraine was largely based on what they'd learnt in Syria. And I would propose that many of the lessons they learnt in Syria are irrelevant to the current situation. You could be flippant and say, well, they learned how to destroy cities and kill civilians. Well, that's true, but it's not a pathway to Russian success here. So there are always lessons from every war, but you've got to be very careful about which ones you apply for what comes next.
1: If I could ask something a bit more narrow, because uh, as I'm sure you're well aware, the the tank has sort of become a centre of discussion and I'm, I'm aware that people have called the end of the era of the tank many times in the past, but uh, given... What we've seen in Ukraine with highly mobile uh, shoulder-fired anti-tank weapons that can be fired by even a single Ukrainian uh, soldier, which seem to that the uh, Soviet tanks don't seem to have a good defence against, at least in terms of the <laughs> the limited footage we're, we're given. And I acknowledge that that that's probably shaped in a particular way. Obviously, we don't see the the failures uh, that the Ukrainians. Um, no doubt are encountering on occasion. But uh, what's your view on this, th- this sort of idea that the tank now is so uniquely vulnerable that it might not be of any use? And as a related question, for those of us who aren't military experts, uh, what is the kind of tactical operational use of a tank? In what ways are they supposed to be used or in what ways are they actually really useful in combat?
0: Yeah, there's been a lot of really um, uninformed debate on tanks, uh, which certainly in Australia is um, really just a continuation of the Canberra anti-tank mafia approach, which has been around for a good 30 years now, which isn't replicated in the anti-fighter or anti-surface ship uh, communities, even though they're even more vulnerable than tanks are. Um, Tanks are the most precise, the most discriminant, the most mobile and the most network fighting hub on the battlefield, period. Um, are they vulnerable? Of course they are. But everything is vulnerable if it's used stupidly. And the Russians have used them, not in a combined arms setting like we would. Um, they've used them as one-offs or two-offs, And they're extraordinarily vulnerable, as we learned in the Arab-Israeli War in 1973 when we started to see dismounted infantry using anti-tank weapons. And we came up with a whole range of ways to defeat these. And that's what we still do. That's what the Americans would do. It's what we would do. The Russians haven't done that. So the tank, the armoured personnel carrier, the infantry fighting vehicle, the self propelled howitzer are all extraordinarily useful and central to ground combat whether it's in open areas or in more close country, be it jungles, we use tanks in Vietnam and in Papua New Guinea and we use them again, or in cities. You you just don't go into a city without armoured vehicles. So the nature of the debate we're seeing at the moment is extraordinarily one-sided. It is uninformed, it's unprofessional, and it's indicative of people looking at social media at dead tanks going, well, the age of tanks is over. Well, they haven't said the age of soldiers are over, even though tens of thousands of soldiers have been hurt and wounded. And they haven't said the age of air force is over, even though the Russian air force has failed. So I think there's a bit of balance. I think there's a bit of evidence required in this debate. And I'd like to see this debate replicated across other military systems that are far more vulnerable and far more far less capable.
1: You yeah, know, this, this is sort of off topic a bit, but you did... Uh... Raise it, and it's not every day I get a former major general on on the podcast. But do you think there is something unique and peculiar about Australia because it's extraordinary? As a sort of layperson interested in military matters as I am, how you you mentioned the sort of anti-tank mafia, but it doesn't seem it doesn't matter what piece of equipment it is. You know, the Joint Strike Fighter. It can be the the Tiger helicopter right down probably to uniforms. For all I know, there are these strong debates in Australia, often by non-experts, who seem to back or hate a particular <laughs> piece of equipment. I mean, is that are we unique in that, or is, does that happen right across the world in lots of different countries?
0: Uh, not necessarily. Um, there's 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 always rice bowls to protect, but we're the unique in being the only. First World Army, who thinks armoured vehicles aren't useful in the future. I mean, some of the opinion pieces I've read in Australian newspapers are just stunningly uninformed and biased and clearly influenced by different industry groups. Um, There are certain organisations that just will not seriously engage on substantive defence procurement issues if they're not, you know, um, you know, being influenced by certain organisations. So, you know, we are remarkably unserious. We don't have a deep think tank community in this country. Um, we continue to change our procurement processes, which upsets corporate knowledge in these kind of things. So we are a little bit unique in that regard. Um, we seem to be the only country that thinks a First World Army isn't required in the future. It is.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that's very interesting. Uh I've got a bit, bit of a strange question on Ukraine and I, and I hope you're willing to um humor me with this. Uh you've got a lot of experience, obviously, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but based on my sort of uh, amateurish, amateurish knowledge of Australian army hierarchy, you've you would have commanded at the division. Uh, regiment brigade and battalion level as you work through your career so obviously the russians have really struggled at every level and we've discussed a couple of the areas where they they have so if uh, vladimir putin called you on your mobile right now and said mick we're in a spot of bother here and my my commanders are useless i'm not getting good advice um what are some ideas you have for me for how, from this point on, <laughs> some changes I might be able to make to make my military more effective or perhaps even changes in the, the strategy or the, the tactics? What would your advice be?
0: Uh, if it was Vladimir Putin, I'd hang up because I'm not going to give any advice that will help the Russians.
1: Okay. So obviously you could provide advice, but um, given that Vladimir is going to listen to this, we don't want to give him any tips that could help him.
0: No, that's right, and I'm not going to do that.
1: The litany of failures, I think we all know what they are, and you've mentioned some from uh, poor morale, poor training, poor leadership, logistical uh, problems, inability to do combined arms, uh, equipment in disrepair or not maintained uh, properly, uh, tactical failures, um, really some idiotic strategic decisions. I mean, we could spend a whole podcast on the... The list of problems that have plagued the Russian campaign. I mean, is if we want to sort of gain an understanding of this, is there some foundational issue that we can trace this all back to? I mean, is does it does it go back to doctrine, or just the entire way the Russian military has been set up, or just the kind of strategic um, style of thinking within the Russian? military or their officer training courses? I mean, if we try and trace this problem upstream, where, where do we end up?
0: Oh, I, I think there is a, so, a systemic issue here, right, with um, what the Russians have tried to do, particularly since 2008. You know, they have gone through a transformation process which hasn't transformed them. They have set certain goals for improving their military. And it's not clear to me that they've really been terribly successful with that. I think they've been telling President Putin one thing about their success with that transformation program, part of which was professionalisation. They've been telling the West something different. And then probably telling themselves something different as well.
1: Okay, so that that's pretty much a problem right at the root of the uh, of the tree.
0: The fish is rotting from the head.
1: Okay, that's <laughs> that's a good way to uh, to put it. Uh, if we now start to think about the future of warfare uh, and some of the interesting ideas and arguments you make in your book, one of the things that really uh, struck me, I found fascinating, was this idea of the relationship between technology and the human element in warfare. And the human element, of course, is not only ancient, as you've pointed out, but also, as you've made clear, even so far in the conversation, it is going to be the beating heart of any warfare in the future, because ultimately, it is a human endeavor, Uh, You say this in in the book, and I quote, despite massive and ongoing advances in technology, it will be the combination of new ideas, new institutions, and well-trained and educated people that will prove decisive for military organizations in 21st century competition and war. And then you go on to say this related thing, the material of war will remain an important success factor but the brains and the will of humans will continue to decide the outcome of war. Can you talk a little bit about the this sort of human element and the role of technology? Because I think sometimes some people talk about the technology as though it subsumes the human or overcomes <laughs> the basic human um, issues, but the war in Ukraine seems like a, a complete... Um, attestation of what you are pointing out there in that I guess you could argue it's the will and the brains of the Ukrainians which are overcoming the at least on paper superior numbers and firepower of the Russians.
0: Yeah and that's the case with every war right Um, technology hasn't won a single war in history to be quite frank humans have won all of them Um, It's how they use technology. It's how they develop new concepts for the use of those technologies. It's how they build them, evolve them, improve them uh, and interfere with the enemy's technologies. Um, All of those things are human processes. Now, I'll caveat that by saying, however, for the first time in human history, we are seeing machines that are able to demonstrate some of the functions that are normally associated with human cognition. So advanced algorithms can, you know, demonstrate uh, uh, attention and search, for example, or, you know, the capacity to operate for longer periods of time than a human brain can. These are all really useful, but they do not replace human cognition because machines don't understand context they don't understand purpose they don't understand um, that if the uh, findings of or the output of an algorithm is wrong people die letters get written to mums and dads so there are some out there who believe this changes the fundamental nature of war I disagree it continues to evolve a character of war but until humans stop making all the key decisions about war, which they currently do, which they always have, and for at least the foreseeable future they will continue to do, um, war's nature is not changing. We may see human cognition and strategic decision-making, planning, tactical decision-making, further informed by different algorithms, uh, but there's nothing out there that convinces me that machines are going to take over decision-making at the political, strategic, operational, or even tactical levels.
1: And building on from that, and this is something I took from your, your book actually, is that the area where technology is most likely to make the biggest difference in this century is enhancing the, the human side. And I think sometimes there's a lot of focus on technology, you know, missiles, ships, the tanks, like we discussed, and although a lot of that technology is new, like drones, obviously they weren't used back in Vietnam, for example. Oh, they weren't. Oh, were they really?
0: Yeah, no. Um, the, the Firebee, the Firebee system was used by the Americans. It was highly classified, but it was certainly used.
1: Okay, well there you go. So <laughs> even even the drones that are being used now in and obviously there's been some innovation in the level that they're being used and i'm, I'm assuming tactically although i could be wrong about that as well but the, the sort of point i was going to make is that the fundamentals haven't changed that is so you if you watch a drone drop a mu- munition on the tank and destroy it well back in world war ii there were planes destroying tanks right they weren't drones and the munitions they're dropping aren't some kind of light year advance into the future they're similar from what I can see to the way munitions work. And so there isn't a sort of, they don't represent, it seems to me, a paradigm shift in warfare. It's like another form of air attack <laughs> that's just deployed, that's just delivered a bit differently. It might give you some advantages in, in the terms of the fact it can sit above a particular part of the battle space for some time and, um, and gives you, perhaps more greater visibility because you can zoom down in, in and, and the like, whereas this kind of enhancement of the human side, because one of the, um, seems to be more significant and correct me if I'm misinterpreting your book, but even simple things like you make the point that time is a really big part of, a big factor in deciding outcomes in um, war, and actually I've got a good quote here from your book, you say, the ability to exploit time is one of the most important considerations in the planning and execution of military activities. That's not just the speed, but it's uh, sequencing and a whole range of time management issues. With the potential of AI and other technologies to sort of um, crunch big amounts of information or speed up decision-making or even enhance or speed up, potentially, communication, uh, that seems to be where, as this century goes forward, we might see, not just in time, but I'm using that as an example from your book, of where we might see the greatest revolution. Um, Do I have that right, or is there still, should I not overlook the fact that there might be some big technological revolution, say, in weaponry that could be a game-changer?
0: Now, I think the ability to understand and exploit time is a really important uh, military trend. Um, I think it is underappreciated. Um, it's implicit uh, in all our planning, right, and all our thinking. Time is always part of it, but we don't consciously value it a lot of time. If you've ever worked in government, you know governments don't value time. Um, and governments really only think in two uh, temporal cycles. They think in the twenty-four hour news cycle, and how it can how they can exploit it and benefit. And they think in election cycles, which is Australia is a three-year cycle. Some state governments four-year. The US it's four-year. Where we're really weak is in the microseconds and decades. Um, decades are really important because not only is it um, in strategic competition a, a time frame where you have to um, prepare your population to invest in competition and uh, uh, lead them through it. I mean, this is the kind of time frame that uh, nations have to have development plans where they look at different regions and stuff. And we're not very good at the discipline of long-term planning and sticking with plans. At the same time, we're terrible with microseconds. I mean, microseconds is the time scale that algorithms work on. But it's also the time scale that um, stock trading takes place on, uh, energy trading takes place on. A lot of people don't realise that, um, and it will be the time scale that tactical operations will take place on in the future. How do we, how do we cope with that? How do we, as a military organisation, cope with combat in microseconds, in seconds, in minutes, in hours, in days, in weeks? and years, um, and think about them all concurrently, um, we don't do that, but we need to be better at valuing and thinking about time at different scales.
1: Another one, another one of the interesting and key concepts that you discuss in the book is adaptability. And this is another, another one of these uh, issues going back to the war in Ukraine that you really wonder about the... The Russians, and I imagine yes. you and other analysts are looking keenly to see any sign of adaptive capacity on on the side of the Russians, because mm. that clearly uh, what they've been trying so far hasn't worked, and so there has to be some kind of uh, adaptation. And uh, you sort of mention in the book that adaptability, much like the ability to exploit time, is one of those most important and significant attributes of military forces and again can play a decisive role um, in terms of the outcomes of warfare and again this is all in contrast to this idea that it's technology that determines war and you've already stated that ruled that out as has ever been the the key decisive factor in warfare so can you talk a bit about adaptability and particularly you know if, if the if warfare in the future is going to be right down to the microsecond, how do you prepare a military when you're talking about large organisations? I mean, the Russians have, what, a couple of hundred thousand troops or so in Ukraine at the moment. How on earth do you adapt (laughs) such a big machine whilst you're in the middle of a big operation or campaign?
0: It's pretty hard, right? Um, Tactical adaptation is always easy. Soldiers know that if... They don't improve and change, they'll die. So adaptation at the coalface is simple. I mean, we see it every day, not just in combat, but in normal uh, training activities in the Australian Army. Um, But above that, adaptation's difficult because the incentives are different. If the incentive to change isn't apparent straight away, um, people and institutions don't change. I mean, that's why we see such slow-moving... Uh, decision-making processes in Russell offices and places like that. The incentive framework doesn't encourage rapid decision-making. Back in 08, I was part of the Adaptive Army um, transformation, which which put the army not on a functional basis but on a temporal basis and how it looked at operations and how it sought to change. And its most important desired outcome, whether we've achieved that, I'll leave up to listeners, is to have a strategic process of adaptation that joined up all the tactical adaptation so the army as a whole was learning and improving and incentivizing good ideas and change that made us better. Um, there are good examples of this. The uh, example of the British Army in the First World War that's examined by Dr Amy Fox and her book, Uh, that came out about two years ago, is a really, really good one. It is possible to do in war. Um, I think if we look behind the curtain with the Ukrainians, we might see that they're doing this. Um, It's not apparent the Russians are doing this. In fact, they keep trying to do the same thing over and over and get a different result, and we know what that's a definition of. We have seen some evolutions from the Russians. Um, Apparently, there are more logistic units coming in Um, the Air Force is playing a greater role, there is better support in the eastern part of Ukraine from the Air Force. But this notion of an adaptation battle where both sides are adapting at the same time while trying to interfere with each other's adaptive processes is an important one. And if I was to make a quick assessment of the Russo-Ukraine war, I would say that the Ukrainians are probably winning the adaptation battle at the moment.
1: Kajdras, you mentioned that... uh... British adaptation in World War One. Um, I'm just be interested to know what that was. What what were they doing that was failing, and what, what how did they adapt?
0: Well, the Somme is a great example of institutional failure. So you know, after that, the the British, um, Canadians, and others, and the Germans on the other side, um, found that just infantry uh, uh, following up after artillery barrages was not working for that environment on the on the Western Front. Uh, Things like combined arms, better coordination of fire support, aviation, reconnaissance, the development of armoured vehicles, all manifested out of an environment where the threat had changed because of technology and new organisations. And therefore, they had to change training, they had to change tactics, they had to change organisational constructs. And, you know, the victories in 1918 were built on learning in 15, 16 and 17. Um, you know, the Battle of Armiennes, um, the August Offensives are great examples of an organisation that learned. Now, some might say it took them too long to learn and there's probably evidence for that too, but they did learn. And the British Army of 1918 was not um, an army of foolish generals. This was a professional, well-led and very competent army that perhaps it was not two or three years beforehand.
1: I suppose the another feature or something related to adaptation is really failure because that that example you just gave from World War 1 I, I guess it's indicative of the fact that failure is going to be inevitable in combat at both the tactical operational and even strategic level and the military I guess that can acknowledge honestly, that failure and react to it effectively is going to have an advantage, right, against mm. an adversary who is also going to inevitably make failures at those three levels as well. But if, if like in that Russian case, they're unable to acknowledge <laughs> that what they're doing is not working and then adapt to the situation, um, then the other side might that might give them the kind of edge that could help them prevail.
0: Yeah, I mean, failure is an integral part of military operations, right? I mean, one side always loses. Uh, but, you know, even if we look to our own military history, um, Gallipoli was a failure, right? Mm. And democracies generally at the start of every war fail because we're not the ones who initiate stuff. We get surprised. Um, Pearl Harbour was a failure. Singapore was a failure. Um, the initial stages of the Kokoda campaign was a failure. The bombing of Darwin was a failure. Um, so we have lots of experience. So in this, as do lots of countries, it's not whether you fail, it's how you respond to that failure. How do you learn? How do you change and adapt? And I think the World War World War II is a great example. The Allies actually learned from their failures and they adapted. You know, a great example is if you have a look at the invasion of Sicily and the invasion of Normandy. Happened about just over a year apart, right? During the invasion of Sicily, the airborne forces that we used and a lot of other aircraft flew over the invasion fleet, and a lot of them were shot at by their own side. So they went back to the drawing board, went, well, it doesn't mean we don't use airborne forces, but if you have a look at the invasion routes for Normandy all the aircraft flew a totally different route. Now, that's a very simple example, but, gee, it's a profound one if you're travelling in those aircraft and you don't want to get shot by your own invasion no. fleet. Um, so yeah. there, was, there, was a, there was a great adaptation that went on amongst the Allies. Um, and it's why we won, right? You know, we adapted quicker, we outproduced, um, we mobilised our societies quickly. I mean, Germany didn't mobilise fully until too late, whereas we mobilised our nations much more quickly. So learning from failure is a essential part of what we do. One thing we don't do well is define what acceptable failure is, however. What's the right kind of failure? Now, we all know unacceptable failure, you know, a whole range of behavioural things there. But there are types of acceptable failure, particularly in training, that we need to be better at defining this. Zero-defect mentality, which sometimes can take hold in military institutions, is corrosive. It's poisonous to the institution because it is only through experimentation and failure that you improve. Now, I think it's an Australian cultural thing. We don't like taking risks as a nation. We're not a risk-taking people in many respects. Um, you know, if you fail once in business in Australia, good luck getting a loan in the future. Whereas in places like America or Israel, if you haven't failed four or five times, you won't get a loan. So part of it, part of it is, you know, there's an Australian culture that doesn't nurture failure as a as part of learning. Only success can be seen as uh, part of learning. And I think our military has um, taken a lot of that on, unfortunately. We've got to fix it because it's going to hurt us in the future.
1: That really makes me want to go down the rabbit hole of talking about culture and its influence on warfare. But we do have a clock that is ticking down. And I I do want to get to one of the really big ideas in the book and, and in kind of strategic thinking about the future of warfare And this is this idea of multi-domain warfare. And you explain it like this. You say that 21st century war and competition involve a more refined balance of violence and influence, the requirement to operate in all domains concurrently, and the need to better integrate military activities within a national approach. Now, my understanding of this concept is to get out of just thinking that war is what takes place between soldiers on the battlefield and to bringing in the political, the economic, in our, in our modern world, the internet, the informational, the propaganda, whatever you want to call it, and this idea that wars are fought and won across almost every domain and dimension of, of life. Is Have I understood that correctly?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, it was really interesting. My first week when I was at the Australian Defence College You know, I talked about what we were going to focus on, you know, and we needed to prepare our people so they understood war, both, you know, to prevent it but also to win them if we're involved in them. And someone put their hand up and said, oh, well, talking about war is a very military thing. Um, I was quite flabbergasted that at the Australian Defence College they were uncomfortable talking about war. Um, But I said, well, no, it's not. Um, Militaries are involved in wars but actually... Wars are fought by countries. They're national endeavours. And if you don't think about war as national endeavours, you're not going to either prevent them and you're not going to win them. So how do we integrate all aspects of national power and influence uh, to prevent wars or fight and win wars in the future? So that's part of, you know, this more integrated approach that I've covered uh, in the book.
1: That's really interesting the I'm just wondering about the relationship between the domains because I, I find the idea the sort of multi-domain idea at the conceptual level it's cogent it makes a, a lot of sense. but I just wonder if in some ways the, the military part of it is still the critical part for example if you got all of your other domains right but not the actual (laughs) military component you probably wouldn't prevail right whereas you may muddle through even if you neglect some of those other domains such as the informational uh warfare side do you think that's a fair comment or am i wrong
0: no i think it's the opposite um And there's a great quote I use from Williamson Murray uh, in the book that gets to this. You know, uh, failures in the tactical domain can hurt you, but failures in strategy live forever. Um, We've seen Germany get it wrong twice in the 20th century where they built the best tactical forces, um, but no strategy, no national approach. Um, We saw the American military may not have been as tactically competent as, say, the Germans or others, but they na- they mobilised their nation, they outproduced everyone else, they had a strategy that prioritised the different regions of the world and the different operations, and then they applied their military forces to that. So if you don't get the strategy right, you might as well not turn up to the war, to be quite frank, and we've seen this in Ukraine, strategy matters. Mm. The Russian strategy was based on three assumptions. Assumption one, Ukraine's not a real country. You know, Putin said that. Uh, Assumption two, uh, the Ukrainians will not fight hard. We'll be able to roll over them in a couple of days. And assumption three, the West will not significantly interfere. All three were wrong. So the strategy was wrong and all their disasters, and they have been military disasters since, have flowed from that poor strategy.
1: And, and I suppose even if they were tactically the slickest, most capable, potent, best fighting force on the planet, which they're not, um, which they're not. But even if they were, with the, with with that completely delusional strategy, they probably still would fail, right? Because they shouldn't have gone in in the first place. That's what that's what those those three fault um, flawed assumptions say.
0: No, that that's dead right. And that's the exact term that Sir Lawrence Friedman used in one of his pieces about a month ago. He called it a delusional strategy. And I think that's a good um good description of it. And, you know, I question whether you can have a delusional strategy and an excellent military force. I'm not mm. sure if those two things go together.
1: Yeah. <laughs> One's probably symptomatic of the other. The um in the time remaining I want to go look really far into the future because you do discuss the impact of AI and robotic technology on the future of warfare, which kind of evoked for me the movie Terminator, (laughs) which is going way, way into the future. And you, you say this, a highly capable joint military task force in the future might consist of as few as several hundred human personnel, and several thousand robotic systems of various sizes and functions. What I'm really interested here is how far away this prospect is. Now, I'm I'm guessing there's a lot of research being done into this, but based on my general knowledge of AI, this feels like it's still quite far off. I mean, how big a, a reality or a real prospect is this?
0: Well, I think as Ukraine's shown, it's further off than we think, um, at least against the Russians. China could be different though, right? Um, And the US is very different. I mean, the US really was the driving force behind the modern development of autonomous vehicles in Iraq, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Not just uh, for reconnaissance or... Um, lethal strikes from predator drones i mean they de- the US army deployed thousands of uh, autonomous ground vehicles in eod in underground search in a whole range of other functions i mean Peter singer's wired for war covers this in detail it's a wonderful book and i recommend it to you to your listeners um, so you know we're 20 years into the modern era of autonomous systems and military institutions, um, I think a China-US conflict, even if it was now, would be very different. We'd see a much higher proportion of these systems being used. Um, the thing that concerns me is I don't think we've really come to grips with the nature of teaming with machines, not using machines. You know, We fly planes, we drive tanks. But teaming with them is very different. And none of our training regimes, none of our education regimes, none of our warfighting concepts have uh, an inherent um, appreciation of the nature of teaming between human machines as equal partners.
1: So by teaming, Mick, you really mean as opposed to a human soldier using a machine as a tool... We're talking about a soldier fighting alongside an autonomous machine that is part of the, the sort of unit, if you
0: like. Yeah, um, as partners, not where one's using the other. So, you know, that, that's, that's the prospect I think we have in the future. Um, none of our personnel development uh, mechanisms uh, allow for that. And it's, it's an area where we're going to have to change.
1: Mick, there's so much more I would love to discuss, but of course we we mentioned time and of course we all live in a time-bound world and (laughs) and so we we have to live by the hour and and the minute and so our time is up, but I'm really grateful for the conversation and I'm sure listeners will find it incredibly insightful and stimulating, so thank you very much.
0: No worries, Jonathan, it's uh, it's great to talk to you today and uh, really appreciate the time to to have this conversation.